Well, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. God, I ask that you would strengthen our hearts, strengthen our inner beings through your Holy Spirit, by your Holy Spirit. And Christ would dwell in our hearts today. And we would see Christ, that we would rejoice in Christ and what he has done. Thank you that we have learned Christ. We know Christ. We are in Christ. We are his. So may we be rooted and grounded in love as we listen to your word and Christ's love for us. That we would see how high and wide and deep is his love for us. That it would pour, pour into our hearts into our minds, into our hearts, and then out of our lives, into our actions. May you be glorified today, Lord Jesus, through the preaching of your word and in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So on the news the other day, saw a reporter who was interviewing a Ukrainian soldier. The soldier had emigrated to the Ukraine from Russia several years ago. Though he was once a Russian citizen and soldier, he is now a Ukrainian and not a Russian anymore. He is now fighting for Ukraine. You see, when he immigrated, he sought and obtained a new identity as a citizen of Ukraine and was now expected to act as a member and citizen of his new country. He must not live as a Russian anymore. He holds a new identity, a new citizenship. He must put off his former identity and manner of life and walk in his new identity, living in accordance with the laws and the values of his new country, even if it means fighting against his old country, his former country. It's just logical, right? It's expected as a new citizen. Well, this morning we are covering Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. As we will launch into the text, we will find Paul utilizing this same principle. He contrasts who the Ephesian believers and us once were, their identity, their citizenship, their old self, and who they and we are now, our new identity, our new citizenship, our new self. He tells us, Paul tells us, how the old self has acted and behaved and how the new self ought to behave and act now that he or she is new. So some clear definitions are in order here. What exactly does Paul mean by old self and new self? It's a good question. Since Paul is talking to the believers in Ephesus, the old self is what they were before they believed their original citizenship, their identity before grace had transformed their lives. They, as Paul says in verse 18, were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, ignorant, hard-hearted, calloused. That's not all. We have learned from the first three chapters that all the believers were also formerly dead in sin, alienated from the citizenship of God's people strangers to the covenant promises, slaves to sin, and children of wrath. 
That was the old self, their previous citizenship and nature. That was their former identity. That was your former identity. Who you were, past tense, by nature. But then there is the new self. Who they are, who you are now by grace. Paul gives us some information on this new self in verse 24. He says, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he or she, the believer, is created after the likeness of God. The first thing that I think of when I hear those words is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now this, of course, is the original creation of humanity. But all humanity fell in Adam and became children of wrath. Paul invokes the language of Genesis to cause us to think of the creative act and power of God that has been exercised in making a new creation. This is not the first time Paul has utilized this concept in Ephesians. We first saw it in chapter 2, which informs exactly what we are talking about here. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's the old self. And were by nature children of wrath. That's the old self. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, the old self made us alive together with Christ, the new self. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the new self. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship Created, there's that created word, created in Christ Jesus. We were created, the new creation is in Christ Jesus. This then is what Paul is referring to as being created in the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. By the grace of God, through the work of Jesus Christ, God has made a new creation in the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. He says in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. The old has passed away. The new has come. The new self, a new creation in Christ. This is the new identity of those who are in Christ. This is how Paul wants you to view yourself. This is how Paul wants you to view yourself. Because that is the spiritual reality. That is the spiritual reality. Alive in Christ. Raised in Christ. Seated with Christ. But this is not all. No, in the first three chapters of this letter, Paul also says that we are blessed in Christ. We are chosen in Him, 
holy and blameless in Him, adopted in Him. We have redemption in Him, forgiveness of sins in Him, obtained an eternal inheritance in Him, sealed with the Holy Spirit in Him. In Him, we are one new man. In Him, we have access to the Father. We are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. We are a dwelling place for God. We are equal heirs with Christ. We are equal members of the same body. We are equal partakers of the covenant promises in Christ. That is who you are. Do you see that? That is the new self. You are righteous. And holy in his sight. This is the new self created in Christ Jesus. Recognize and rejoice in that identity, church. Recognize and rejoice in that identity, church. Stand firm in this identity, church. If you get nothing else from this, know this identity is yours. You have it in Christ. You are a new citizen. That's the introduction. Now these are the foundational ideas upon which this passage is built. But the passage itself is not about these spiritual truths but rather about how we live in response to them. That is what the rest of Ephesians is really about. He spent three and a half chapters, four, four and a half chapters, building this identity so that you're secure in it. And then he says, how do we live? How do we then live in response to this truth? How should we then live as new citizens? How should we conduct ourselves as the redeemed people of God? And so Paul says, verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So here he begins by exhorting the Ephesian Christians, the church, not to practice the unrighteous deeds, actions, and practices of the Gentiles. But we need to talk about the word Gentiles, don't we? Because, well, didn't we just learn that there is neither Jew nor Greek, no Jew nor Gentile, that all are one in Christ, that Gentiles are, have full inclusion in the church? And now he says that we must no longer be like the Gentiles, act like the Gentiles. So what's up? Well, this is specifically a reference to the ethical practices of the unbelieving Gentile nations. His use of Gentiles here is drawing the immediate distinction between the moral laws of the Jews that were given by God and those of the other nations, which were not. 
The Gentiles did not have the Ten Commandments or the numerous other moral laws that flowed from them and from the nature of God. They did not know what God had commanded and what was righteous and holy because they did not have God's law. Therefore, they created their own laws. Ever seen that before? They made up whatever they deemed best according to the lusts of their flesh and the concoctions of their minds. Therefore, they walked, as Paul says, in the futility of those minds because their consciences were calloused, their understanding darkened, and their hearts hardened against the God of Israel and his ways. Hence, they gave themselves up to every practice, to practice every kind of impurity. I don't think I need to go into much detail there. You all watch the news. You all see the tabloids. You hear the banter around the water cooler on the job site. You all hear the godless and impure ways of those in America and elsewhere. Those are the ways of the Gentiles. But that is not the way you learn Christ, he says. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is not the way you learn Christ. So living like the Gentiles, living like the world is contrary to the mission and message of Christ. Contrary to the kingdom that you are now a citizen of. And to the king whose rule you are under, it is contrary to Christ. Now interestingly, the expression, that is not the way you learned Christ, does not refer to head knowledge. But it is an expression of relational knowledge. That is not the way you came to know Christ himself, is what it means. As Bill said to me, it's not about who Christ is, it's about who we are in Christ. Hmm. That is what Paul is referring to here. Christ as your personal, loving Savior. A Savior who died for you to make you his own. Now let's think a little more about that. Why exactly... Did Jesus have to die for you? Because forgiveness comes at a cost, an infinitely steep cost, because sin and unrighteousness against the holy and righteous God is infinitely wicked, infinitely wicked. Sin is so egregious that it took the slaughter of the perfectly spotless Son of God to pay for it. That is how bad our sin is. The crucifixion and death of Jesus not only purchased my forgiveness, but simultaneously upheld and vindicated the righteousness and holiness of God, thus demonstrating its infinite worth and value, while at the same time exhibiting the utter vileness of my sin. Whew! That was a lot, wasn't it? I put it on your notes. Let's read through it again. The crucifixion and death of Jesus not only purchased my forgiveness, oh, amen, that is good right there. But at the same time, simultaneously upheld and vindicated the righteousness and holiness of God. 
He's so righteous and holy that it took this infinite payment of Jesus Christ himself. Thus, it demonstrated the value and worth of that righteousness, didn't it? Absolutely. The sacrifice showed you how much God's righteousness and holiness is worth. And at the same time, it showed you how bad your sin was against that righteous and holy God. The cross upheld the worth of God's holiness while providing forgiveness. Hence the word redemption, redemption value. You see, Jesus did not overturn the law and God's righteousness and holiness by the cross, but he fulfilled them. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, he said. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever elects is one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. To continue living as Gentiles, to continue living in your former manner of life, to continue devaluing, degrading, and demeaning God's righteousness and holiness diminishes the glory of the cross and the death of Jesus. Paul says that we were created created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. This is our unalterable spiritual state. Like I said earlier, unalterable spiritual state. And so we ought to strive with all of our efforts to live consistently with this identity by reflecting God's true righteousness and holiness in our thoughts, words, and deeds. The first way of doing this, Paul says, is by putting off our old self, who walked in ways, in ways that dishonored God, that despised His holiness, disdained His righteousness. Put it off. In other words, stop it. Just stop it. Don't do that anymore. That's not who you are anymore. Now, this is a continuous putting off. Any of you all put something off and then it like tracked you down? It's like, ha, 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 and jumped on you. And you had to put it off again. And then you start running, and it's like, no, and it's like jogging alongside of you. How are you doing today? Yeah. Can I jump on your back? The temptation will always be there to go back to the old self, won't it? To once again start living like a citizen of your old kingdom. But that's not the country you're a citizen in anymore. Don't do the things that make a mockery of your king or the kingdom in which you now have residence, eternal, ongoing residence. Rather, as a citizen of God's kingdom, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Remember that verse, verse 10, chapter 2? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For what? For what? 
Oh, good job. Which God prepared beforehand that we should do what? Walk, Walk in them. I, I was hoping the slide was up. I was, you guys are like, I don't know. <laughs> we were created in Christ for good works. Works that reflect the likeness of God. We should put on our new self. That is, dress ourselves. Adorn ourselves in the conduct and behaviors consistent with our new recreated nature and citizenship. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is what it means to put on the new self. To act in true righteousness and holiness. You are, therefore, you ought to try to be reflecting of this. Paul says to the believers in Rome, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching that to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and have been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You are a new self. You have a new identity. So walk in that identity and act like a citizen of that kingdom. That's what Paul's saying. In other words, act in accordance with who you have been recreated to be. It's like Elrond saying to Aragorn as he hands him the sword of Gondor, put aside the ranger, become who you were born to be. Hmm, put aside the ranger, become who you were born to be. So Paul says to us, put aside the old self and its ways and become who you were born again to be. So how do we know what walking in the new self after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness looks like? Glad you asked. It's not simply not violating. It is simply not, it is not simply not violating the moral laws of God. Is it? Is it? Is it simply not violating the Old Testament laws? No! It is far more than that. Hmm. As we begin to read Paul here, we see clear allusions to both the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, and the Ninth Commandment, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. So the Old Testament moral code is certainly at play here. But Paul's instructions go beyond simply the breaking of these commandments. He turns to a far more exacting standard, one that transcends and therefore truly fulfills the Old Testament laws. Just as Jesus did not not violate the letter of the of the moral law, no, sorry, I've got so many knots in here I can't read. Just as Jesus did not just not violate the letter of the moral law, but truly fulfilled it by acting in love. So that is what Paul calls us, who have been created in Christ, to do. 
Living in true righteousness and holiness is living and acting in love. All of that, just to say, living and acting in love? Yes. Yes. When Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was, he answered by not quoting a commandment. But rather, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Wait, that wasn't a commandment. This is the great and first, great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Wait, that wasn't a commandment either. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God. Love your neighbor. This is living in true righteousness and holiness. And notice that he says all of the law and prophets are summarized, are encapsulated in this command to love. It's not and never was about simply trying to avoid violating certain commands. Oh, as long as I don't... See how close I can get to the line here? Just as long as I don't. Oh. It was never about that. It was about love. The law has always been about positive acts of love for God and for others that begin in the heart. Therefore, Paul exhorts us, verse 32, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. Oh, that sounds kind of like that walk in likeness of God thing. Be imitators. As beloved children. And do what? Walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What kind of law could regulate that? Walk in love, be kind to others, do good to others. Against such things, there is no law. Oh, you cannot be nice to them. Don't do it. Don't forgive them. He says just before that, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Did you notice this is all? what is going on inside of our hearts that then manifests in our behavior. Paul says in Colossians 3, which is very similar to this passage, they obviously were struggling with the same thing the Ephesians were. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You hear that part? In you? That's the heart. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have done what? Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put off the old self. And putting on the new self begins in our hearts. Being kind and not malicious. Tenderhearted and not bitter. 
begins on the inside. As was said in previous sermons that uh, we'll touch on this sermon, how you feel and act, how you feel about and act towards others is not caused by what is happening outside of you, but because of what is inside of you. It's not circumstantial, not because of how you are being treated, but about your heart and what's going on inside of it. As Jesus said, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So as we look to Paul's instructions here, I urge you to look not only at your actions, but at the motivation for them, at your heart. So with this in mind, let's turn to the four areas that Paul begins with. I say begins because the rest of the book is about walking in righteousness and holiness. Verse 25, therefore having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So he starts with having put away falsehood. That is, all forms of deception meant to conceal the truth or to influence or cause someone to believe something that is not true in a way that you are trying to defraud them. This includes, but is certainly not limited to, lying, withholding vital information, exaggeration, flattery, intentionally misleading someone, and intentional inaccuracy. But Paul doesn't go into nearly as much detail as I just did, does he? Rather, he makes a blanket statement that would cover all of this by simply saying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. This isn't rocket science, folks. This is what genuine love does. It speaks the truth. I love the concept that he brings forth here with the idea of being members one of another. It is a consistent theme throughout Paul's writings that we are members one of another. We are one body. A body that harms itself by speaking falsehood, is called what? Cancerous. When your body attacks your body, it's cancer. Falsehood is a cancer. Not speaking the truth is cancerous and poisons the body you are a part of. Now, does this then mean that you have carte blanche permission to go around correcting, chastising, and dressing down everyone and everything you see just because you see it. Everybody say, no, no, no. You see, Paul actually addresses this in verse 29, which we haven't gotten to yet. But our words, including speaking the truth, ought always to be for building up, that they may give grace to those who hear. Mm. See, it all kind of ties together, doesn't it? But we'll get to the grace to those who hear in a little bit. I do want to pause here for a moment to say something 
really important. The principles that Paul is providing are the norm. The way we should normally live in the normal circumstances and normal activities and interactions of life. But sometimes there are abnormal circumstances which call for exceptions to the rule. And Scripture makes provision for these exceptions. It does. General principle, this is the norm. Act this way in general. But it gives us provisions for exceptions. We see exceptional circumstances in the lives of some of the godly in Scripture, don't we? A couple of well-known examples. Rahab righteously lied. Oh, yeah. David righteously deceived Saul. Elijah righteously mocked the prophets of Baal. But these were exceptional circumstances, abnormal circumstances that they faced. Some of us might encounter exceptional circumstances where love for God or others transcends these general principles that we are hearing about today. Where righteousness and holiness actually call for a different course of righteous action, such as protecting the poor and powerless, which might include you from abuse or other grave injustices. Because these are the exception and not the norm, if you have questions please ask the leaders of this church or other spiritually mature men or women if you think you are or might be in an exceptional circumstance. Someone you might know is in an exceptional circumstance. The overriding principle, again, is love and righteousness and holiness. We good? You guys get that? Now back to the passage. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Gee, we heard a sermon about that recently, didn't we? Hmm. Be angry and do not sin. Taking this in context, Paul seems to be saying positively, let each of you be angry when it's appropriate. But don't sin in anger. Yes, there are times when we should be angry. But this is not a carte blanche justification for all anger, though, or for most of the anger that we experience. Someone once said, you've seen this quote before, anyone can become angry. That's easy. But to be angry with the right person or circumstance for the right reason to the right degree, at the right time, for the right duration, and in the right way, that ain't easy. So, when should we be angry, as Paul seems to be exhorting here? I took all of those points from the anger sermon, and I tried to put them into one. We should be angry when God's true righteousness and holiness are perverted. We should be angry when God's true righteousness and holiness are perverted, when God's character or law or gospel or his justice is perverted. That is the time for anger. 
The root of our anger must be our love for God and love for others. The root of our anger must be our love for God and for others. Any and all other feelings and expressions of anger are sinful. So, if you become angry for selfish reasons, which covers just about every reason that we become angry, would you agree? If you don't, you need to. And if you're getting angry at me, <laughs> reasons such as feeling like you've been unfairly treated, that's not fair. Been inconvenienced? Do you ever get angry because somebody inconvenienced you? Like your children? <laughs> Feeling like you have been denied something that you think you deserve? Ever that, that ever happened? Somebody else want to preach this? <laughs> Feeling like you are not in control? <laughs> That's the most angry time, isn't it? <laughs> Those are the times where it is sin. Now, it is sometimes difficult to discern your rationale behind your anger, whether it is righteous or unrighteous. Thankfully, Paul here gives us a timeline for our anger so that even if we are justified in our anger, that anger has a statute of limitations, after which it becomes sinful no matter what our justification is. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is an idiom, meaning it must be short-lived. Short-lived. Very short-lived. If you wake up angry for something that happened yesterday, last week, last month, or last year, that is way too long. Paul says your anger is now an opportunity for the devil. What? You are giving Satan a foothold in your life and in your emotions if you are angry today for anything that happened before today. Anybody say, ouch? As Bodhi says, if you can't say amen, you better say ouch. <laughs> Even your righteous anger is no longer righteous if you're still holding on to it from the past. Any lingering anger in your heart from the past is not a tool for righteousness, but is rather now a tool for the devil to use to harm you and all of those around you. It's time to put it away. And this is why Paul instructs us to put away all anger at the end of the chapter. Hmm. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Thou shalt not steal. That's simple enough. Taking things that do not belong to you and that are not rightfully yours is stealing. Even if you really want it or think you deserve it. Don't do that. 
But that's the easy part of Paul's instruction today, isn't it? It's easy for me to say, well, I just won't take that thing. <laughs> Paul adds the command, rather let him labor. Oh, man! Let him earn his keep, pay his way. If he does not work, he shall not eat. Work, work hard, provide for yourself and your family. It's a good command. But then Paul goes a little cuckoo. Little crazy. He doesn't stop there. He keeps going on this whole love for others thing. Don't just earn enough for yourself and your family, but work hard so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. <laughs> Mind-blowing! Boom. So, earn so that you can freely give. Work so you can love. Your work is an act of love so that you can express your love to others who are in need. Give to those who are in need and aren't able to earn enough for themselves. That is the law of love. The law of Christ. The old self took where it could, even unjustly. The new self shall, should work so that we can give to others. Wow! Talk about a different ethic. This was in the Old Testament, folks. It's just we caught, oh, don't do that. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Covered this subject too when we preached through Proverbs, didn't we? Corrupting talk covers all of the different ways of communicating that are intended to tear down, to diminish others through our words. <laughs> That's hard. These include gossip, slander, scorn, mockery, ridicule, insult, reviling, dishonoring, scoffing, and I can keep it going. Paul says, don't do that. But once again, he doesn't stop there, does he? He covers everything under the sun in the don't do category as well as in the you should do category when he says, but speak only such as is good for building up. That about covers it all, doesn't it? You don't have to worry about tearing others down with your words if you are consumed with building other, others up with your words. Yeah. I don't need to worry about that law if I'm just, oh, man, I want to talk about how, how wonderful others are. I want to build them up. This is the biblical principle of love at work in our words. Paul is telling us that we need to seriously ponder our words, how we speak them, when we speak them, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Mm. Is that your filter? Give grace to those who hear. When I speak, how I speak, what I speak. 
Is your speech seasoned with grace? Are the things that you say to people meant to convey grace to them? Are the words that you speak about people meant to convey grace to your hearers about them? Do your words honor people? Are they kind? Do they elevate them in others' eyes? Are your words grace-filled? Such are the words of someone who has put on the new self. Now, it's all good in theory, right? Let's, uh, let's apply, try to apply this to our lives. This week we have all looked on as a war has begun overseas. And we have watched anxiously as the rest of the world, in particular our government, respond to it, right? Are we inching closer to entering the conflict, to going to war? Much of it seems so far removed from us, and some of it all too close to home. What can we do? How are we to respond biblically? After all, we are not the leaders of any of those nations, nor do we have a hotline to any of them. It's not like I can call up somebody and say, hey, stop it. Don't do that. It doesn't seem like there is a way to seemingly truly impact the physical needs of those involved or affected by this conflict. So in such a circumstance, we need to remember the overriding principles expressed this morning. Love for God, love for others. All right? Love for God, love for others. So, applying our principles, we must speak the truth that God is in control of this situation just as much as he is in control of everything that we are going through regarding the war and regarding everything else going on in our life. God is in control. Speak that truth. We're saying this morning, our God is the only righteous judge ruling over us with kindness and wisdom. We will keep our eyes on you so we can set our hearts on you. That's the first thing. Speak the truth so that those who you are speaking with set their eyes on God, on His sovereignty, on His love for you, His love for people. God's sovereignty and care is our only hope. The only hope for Russia, the only hope for Ukraine, the only hope for America. This truth we must speak and affirm. We also need to be filled with compassion for those affected by this conflict. Love for others. See that? See how that worked? Those undergoing so much suffering, Ukrainian and Russian. Mothers whose sons will be maimed or killed. Women whose husbands will never return. Children who will never again see their fathers or mothers. Soldiers and civilians who will lose their homes their limbs, their lives, and themselves. The human toll is incomprehensible. 
our physical and material reach is obviously very limited sitting here this morning. But we can certainly apply the principle of working so that we can give to those in need. To the over one million refugees who have sought asylum in Poland and Moldova, Romania, we can give to ministries and humanitarian organizations who are serving those people. That we can do. And because God is in control, we can have an great, even greater effect through prayer. We can pray for these souls, every one of them created in the image of God, the soldiers and leaders, civilians and refugees. Many of us might have been angry when this conflict burst began, and righteously so, because God's justice had been perverted. But we shouldn't be angry any longer, because what does that do? Oh, I'm so mad. Okay. Woohoo. What does that accomplish? That anger should have turned or should turn into a passion to act or to pray for all those involved in this conflict. Pray for Zelensky and Putin and the UN leaders and our national leaders not reviling some or all of them. Oh, there's that other principle. The whole that's corrupting talk. If you just sit there and criticize them, what does that do? Nothing. Praying for God's justice to rain down in the situation. That's what we must pray. Praying for hearts and attitudes to be changed. Praying for judgment where it needs to occur and for deliverance. Praying for the preservation of life and the church in all of these affected countries. Praying that millions of souls would be touched with the grace of God through all of this suffering. That's just one little application of these four principles. There are myriad others spend a long time up here. I want you to take them. Go home. How can you apply these four principles to that and to everything else going on in your life? I close with verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I get this picture in your mind that Paul is communicating here. The root idea of the word grieve means to cause pain. Do not, by your behavior, cause pain, grieve, to the one, the Holy Spirit, who is holding you safe and secure in his arms of love, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this is the picture that I'm picturing in my mind. I wanted to get a picture of it. I couldn't find a good picture. Sorry, just got to imagine. I can only imagine. It's the picture of a child squirming, writhing, fighting, screaming, scratching at their parent as that parent holds them tightly in their strong and loving arms, carrying them to safety. Any of your parents go, mm-hmm, that happened before. That's what we are doing when we don't walk in love. We cause pain to the Holy One who holds us. 
And yet, he still holds us safely. Still, irrevocably seals us for the day of redemption. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, this is what happened. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the what? The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He has sealed you. It is guaranteed. He will continue to hold on. Even though you can grieve him by sometimes walking in your former manner of life, stand firm in the assurance that he still holds you firm. And he always will hold you firm until the day of redemption. He will. He will. That is our assurance. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by his grace. We are those people. We are his. We are citizens. We have been sealed Therefore, stand firm in your new self, your new identity, in the assurance of your salvation, and seek to revere and exalt the Father who planned your redemption, to worship and adore the Son, Jesus Christ, who secured your redemption, honor and esteem the Holy Spirit who holds you firm until the day of your redemption by walking in true righteousness holiness by walking in love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the security of being held in your arms. That you have sealed us, Holy Spirit. And you guarantee the day of redemption for us. Lord, we are sorry for when we fight and we scratch and we, we resist your leading. Lord, help us to love you. Help us to love others. Help us to love you. Help us to love others in righteousness and in holiness, Lord. We want to work with you and not against you. Thank you for the citizenship that you have given us. May we walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen.